Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, your love is deeper and wider than our wildest imaginations. Father, we are given glimpses of the greatness of your love in your word. But Father, our mortal minds cannot truly comprehend how deep your love is for us. And so, Lord, you put your love on display on the cross where there your only begotten Son, the one through whom you created all that exists, the one who is preeminent, he gave his life for us. And this, as your word tells us, is how you demonstrate your love towards us. And that while we were wretches, were rebels, were strangers, were foreigners, we were sinners, yet Christ died for us. He took upon Himself our sin. He took upon Himself our punishment so that our sin would be removed and our punishment would be taken away. So Lord, as we take the time now to look to Your Word, and Father, as we consider in a few moments and remember that great act of love in our time at your table today. Father, may we stand in awe and amazed at your magnificent love. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Savior, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1. I uh, had grandiose ideas that we're going to get through 11 verses today. And then as I was putting things together and, and working with the sermon and, and considering our time at the Lord's table, uh, we're going to get through all of one verse today. Um, but I think, particularly as we understand what this verse is telling us and what it points us to, uh, I hope by God's grace it will be a profitable time for you and that His Word would work. Again, we, have began, we began a couple weeks ago looking at the Minor Prophets, and again, we're looking at the last four of the Minor Prophets, and we began looking at Zephaniah and working through this Word of the Lord. I think it's important again to mention um, that these are not just the words of a man. This is not just Zephaniah's take on things. This is God speaking to his people. And Zephaniah is very stark with us. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't couch the truth. He's very clear 
with what God is going to do to those who persist in rebellion against Him. And as we had mentioned when we started this entire study is that the prophets are used by God in many ways. The Word of God is used as a hammer, as a, as a chisel to break up the fallow ground of our hearts. That God speaks through His Word in a way that opens us up to realize our need for repentance, our need for trust, our need for allegiance to Christ. And in doing this, it sets us up, it shows us the steps needed for God to come and to bless us, to rain down revival upon us. And again, we all, we all would love to see revival. We all love to hear the stories of the Great Awakening and how God's Word captivated whole areas of this nation, whole parts of the world. And we would love to see that happen again today. And the minor prophets come to us and they tell us, this is what you must do to seek revival. And so, as we're looking today at Zephaniah and continuing our look, we're seeing (coughs) Zephaniah as a prophet who speaks very clearly of wrath, but also gives us hope and joy. As we looked at last week, we saw the the first um, six verses of this passage where Zephaniah jumps in and speaks of how God is going to utterly sweep away everything. And he points to the reason for this severe judgment is because of mankind's idolatry. And so we saw how God judges idolatry as Zephaniah begins this look at uh, what God is going to do. And then what we come to and what we're going to look at this week and next week is how Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord. Again, when we began talking about Zephaniah, one of the key focuses of this book is this topic, the day of the Lord. And, and one of the reasons why, after we finished Second Peter, I, I was drawn to the minor prophets is because Peter speaks of and promises that the day of the Lord will come. And so what is that day? And here we find in the minor prophets a description of what that day is. So look with me in Zephaniah chapter 1. We'll read verses 7 through 18, but the focus of our time this morning will be on verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate and a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail! O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. 
The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry. Against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This is heavy stuff that Zephaniah walks us through here. This is, I think, one of the main reasons why the minor prophets are so neglected among the church today. But yet, Zephaniah's message, as we've mentioned over and over again, is desperately needed for us today, as it has been at all times for God's people. And what I want us to do, and particularly what I want us to understand about the day of the Lord, is how are we to approach our understanding of the day of the Lord? How should the day of the Lord affect us? And particularly this morning, that's what I'd like us to consider as we look primarily at verse 7. How should we approach the day of the Lord? And we see the first thing very clearly in verse 7. What are the first two words? Be silent. We need to approach the day of the Lord with silence. Zephaniah is very clear here. In fact, that this literally renders hush. The idea is that as we're coming to this day, as we're coming to understand this day, it's not a time for us to present our arguments. It's not a time for us to to look at it and to, to bring our thoughts and our ideas before what is going to happen. There are many who would read these verses and they would look at them and immediately they would object to the content that's in them. What kind of God is this that would do these type of things? How how could God speak so violently about what He's going to do to sinners who rebel against Him? How, How could God act in such a way? This isn't the God that we want, right? We don't want a God of judgment. We want a God of full love and compassion and mercy. And He is all of those things, but we cannot brush aside the reality that our God is a God of wrath. He does not turn away from sin. He does not simply hide His face from our sins as though they don't exist. He must deal with sin. And so Zephaniah sets the tone very clearly. Hush before the day of the Lord. In fact, this is particularly going to become important as we understand what the day of the Lord is, or particularly how Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord. It's interesting. He does not 
come and, and speak, although he's going to describe the terrible things that are going to happen by God's will to those who rebel against him. He does not speak of it as just a, a day of calamity or as a day of, of wrath, but behind that, notice what God is doing. The day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Now, we'll look in a second about at the, at, at the significance of that, but I think it's important for us to recognize what God is doing. He is sacrificing those who rebel against Him. And when a sacrifice is always, any time a sacrifice is brought before the Lord, it is meant for those who bring a sacrifice, whether it be bulls or goats, whether it be turtle doves, whether it be any animal that's brought before Him, it is meant so that, the, that God presence may be entered into that God himself is near in fact that's the thing we see there why are we to be quiet the day of the Lord is near what is the day of the Lord it is the day when God comes and executes his wrath personally he is involved in this and so when we come before the Lord when we come before this great God our requirement is not to feel that we have the right to stand before him as Job uh, foolishly said, I would plead my case before the Almighty. And how did God answer him? Out of a tornado, a whirlwind. And he said, you want to answer me? And he stood before him, and Job, realizing the folly of such a thing, kept his peace. And so Zephaniah tells us from the get-go, keep your peace. Hush. Be silent. Before the Lord. We see this in the other prophets. Habakkuk. The Lord is in his holy temple. And so, what is to be the response of all the earth to keep silence before him? And Zechariah, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, it's interesting to note who we are silent before. Again, look in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. And if you'll notice, at least in the English Standard Version here, Lord is in lowercase letters, but God is in uppercase letters. And we generally would expect that to sort of be the other way around, that Lord would be in all uppercase letters and God would be in lowercase letters. And there's a, a, a term here. God is using the covenant name for God, Yahweh. But he's also referring to the fact that God is the absolute sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. Now, understand that these two things are linked. Who are we to stand before the great God of, the cre of creation and to question Him? Who are we? We have no right to come before the God who has made everything. We have no right to speak in His presence on His day. And it's, it's almost as though an unruly court, the, the view here is that there's an unruling courtroom. The whole earth is sort of a clamoring uh, courtroom. You've seen this if you've ever watched a, uh, you know, usually some sort of drama about what goes on in courtrooms and, and something happens and people are aghast. And, and what, what does the judge have to do? Hammers the gavel and says, Order, silence. 
And that is the very image that's going on here. The earth continues to clamor underneath its rebellion, continues to clamor to plead its case before the Lord. And the judge enters the room and all the earth must be silent. This is also important to note that the attitude of the priests and the people, that as they would come before the Lord, this is who they were coming before. The Lord God, the sovereign of the universe. That as particularly as this is a time of sacrifice, which in the Old Testament, that was what worship was about. They would worship through sacrifice. And so at that time, it was not a time for men to speak. It was not a time for our thoughts to take up our imaginations and to be on display. Rather, it is a time for God to speak. It is a time for God to act. And I think this fundamental attitude towards worship is desperately needed in the church today. We often think that worship is about us, right? We think that, that I'm here to, 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 be, to be propped up, that I am here to hear what I need to hear. I am here to help myself. And that that's how we approach worship today. The Scriptures are abundantly clear. This is not a time for you. It's a time to come before the sovereign of the universe. And so, not just this morning as we see uh, Zephaniah's call for us to hush, but any time we come before God in silence, we must, or we come before God, we must be silent. We must hush. Every time we come to worship, what is it that is occupying your thoughts? What are your conversations about if you're in the back eating breakfast? What are you talking about before the service? What is it that is occupying your time? And then as you come in, and you know, thankfully, we have a congregation here who's not clamoring when I'm preaching. You guys are quiet when I'm preaching. But what's going on in your minds? Have you quieted your hearts and your souls? Have you quieted what you're thinking so that you can focus on hearing God? Or are the concerns of your life, are the cares of this world, are the things that are occupying your mind at this moment crowding out and, and breaking points where you cannot hear God anymore? You can sit in a worship service and be very noisy apart from hearing the Word of God. So God calls us, Zephaniah calls us to be silent before the Lord God. His day is near. What is this day about? What well, is a day where the Lord, in verse 7, has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests? Second thing that we see is that we're to approach the day of the Lord with holiness from Him. It's amazing to see here how there is a consecration of those who have come to this act of worship in this sacrifice. In fact, throughout the Scriptures, when a sacrifice, an offering before the Lord was offered, 
the attitude and approach of God's people was important. He required that silence. He also required that those who approach him be sanctified, set apart, consecrated. That what was happening in worship was not common because you were not coming before anything that was common. That that is the, the very heartbeat behind the command, you shall not take the Lord's name in what? Vain. Because there's nothing vain about God. In fact, everything else, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us, everything else is vanity. There's only one thing that truly matters, and it is the Lord. But we in our rebellion, we in our sin, flip that around, and we make everything else seemingly important, and God becomes insignificant to us. And so it was necessary that consecration, sanctification, setting oneself apart for worship was part and parcel with what it meant to approach the Lord and to worship before Him. We see this in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel comes and, and he's, he's going to anoint David as king and he comes to offer a sacrifice to worship. And, and notice what he says as he's doing this. He said, peaceably I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So what is the automatic response of that? Consecrate yourselves. And once one is consecrated, then you come to the sacrifice. And so he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. There is a common theme pointing throughout all of Scripture that when you approach God, you approach with holiness. Now, I think it's also important to note that there's a hint of hope found in this passage filled with dread. Right? I mean, as, as we just read, this is, this is not simple, easy stuff. This is not your best life now in this passage. And so as we, as we come to this, we can look at it and we can say, is there, is there anything hopeful in this? But, but notice what is said here. Notice how the consecration comes about. Who is it that consecrates the guests? It is the Lord Himself. God is the one who does the work of consecration. There's a wonderful reality that our hope for holiness is not, nor is it ever found in ourselves. Holiness, I think, in many ways has become sort of a a, a word that we don't like to talk about in the church. And I, I think understand why that is to some extent. There are movements and, and, uh, and churches that focus on holiness. There's a holiness movement that unfortunately flips what God is pointing to here. It looks to say, you are the one who create holiness by doing X, Y, and Z. So you, you have to keep yourself in, in a certain manner of, of things. And I'm not talking about having standards or seeking to, to willfully choose to not do sinful things, but to place your hope in your own pursuit of holiness. It is not what God is pointing to here. It is God who makes His people holy. He is the one who consecrates us. 
Zephaniah, in begin, before he even talks about the terrors of what's going to happen on the day of the Lord, he begins by pointing to the need for grace, for God to consecrate us for the sacrifice. We are unable to consecrate ourselves, but God does so on our behalf. Now, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Who is the sacrifice? Who is being sacrificed here and who are the guests? And there is, of course, when you come to particularly the minor prophets, there's a varying group of opinions among commentators. But I think if we look at what, what God is seeking to do here, the guests are those who are the genuine redeemed of God's people. They are those who are truly saved by grace and faith in Christ alone. Who is the sacrifice? And I think it's important for us to recognize the sacrifice in this instance is not an animal. There is no bull or goat that is referred to here. The blood of lambs is not what is spilt here. It is the blood of of his rebellious people that is spilt. The guests are called to a feast here, and the sacrifice is all is both here, particularly Judah and Jerusalem, those that claim to be God's people, but are not. And then we'll see that this expands to focus on the entire world. And so God is calling us to consecrate ourselves for this time. Which brings us then to the third point. As we approach the day of the Lord with holiness from Him, coming with silence, we have to recognize and be aware of what He is doing in the day of the Lord. It is a sacrifice. I think perhaps if, if you understand the Old Testament, if you understand the sacrificial system, this would come as a bit of a shock. Because, again, as we noted, those who are being sacrificed are not animals who are stand-ins, are not those that are substitutes. Rather, the sacrifice are rebellious people themselves. It's a sobering truth. It's a, it's a shocking and terrifying truth. And yet it is truth. What is God doing on the day of the Lord? He is sacrificing those who rebel against Him. Now this idea, this imagery of a sacrifice of people on the day of the Lord finds support throughout the prophets. We look, look at Isaiah. Isaiah speaks equally disturbingly of what is happening on this day of sacrifice. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord, Yahweh, has a sword, and it is sated 
with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Jeremiah speaks of this, particularly linking it to the day of the Lord. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country, in the north country by the river Euphrates. And Ezekiel speaks of this as well. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God. Again, the same name that we have Zephaniah using in verse 7. This is God's word. What is the word? Ezekiel is to speak, and it's interesting here, this word is not given to humanity. It's not given to rebellious people. Who's it given to? The birds. Speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble. And come gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. This is not the blood of animals or bulls or goats. It is the blood of men who are slaughtered on this day of sacrifice, the day of the Lord. In fact, John takes up this same thing in Revelation 19. He sees an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. What is God doing on this day of sacrifice? He is bringing His wrath to be satisfied on those who rebel against Him. When we looked in Isaiah, it spoke of how God's sword, the sword of His judgment, was sated or satiated. It it, it drunk its fill. And the idea there is that there is an appeasement of God's wrath through His sacrificing people who rebel against Him. Again, we have to understand what the purpose of a sacrifice is. Even in the Old Testament system, what does a sacrifice do? Why was an animal taken? Why was its throat cut? Why was blood spilt on the altar? Why was it sprinkled all throughout the temple? Why was this gory scene done? Because it is a testimony. It is a reminder of what sin deserves. I think we need to have this vision more now than ever because we have lost, I think, some of the vision of the sting of death today. 
First of all, we, we think we, in our day and age that's so medically advanced, we live longer than we really have at mostly any other time in history, except for, you know, the times of Methuselah, who's living 900 years and stuff like that. But, but we have long lifespans. We have uh, amazing drugs that God, by His grace, has given to us to keep us alive. We have, we have uh, advances to, to keep us safe from, from diseases and, and things that, that would have easily killed us years ago. I mean, if, if you think about the advancements in, in longevity of life, just since penicillin came on the, on the market, and, and that was just because a guy... If I remember correct, I may be wrong about this, but what, you just didn't have some moldy bread or something like that. He's like, hey, this, this can do something, all right? Now, I'm not saying eat moldy bread. <laughs> we, we have, when we, we see people at the end of their lives, we, we have a, a medical system that comes along and seeks to comfort them as much as is possible. And I, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. The scriptures are clear that there is a place to provide relief to people who are near death. But in our day and age, this happens in a clinical um, environment, in an environment that's clean and, and clear, and, 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 and we talk about it as though someone has just fallen asleep. When the Scriptures tell us the wages of sin is what? Death. Our minds should not run to a person in a bed with all sorts of, of um, medicine and all sorts of comfort measures done for him. Our mind should run to the Old Testament sacrificial system where you would hear the baying of lambs as they were killed. Where you would be a witness to this bloody, gory mess. And it would remind you, as that lamb, as that goat, as that animal stood in your place, that what it was experiencing, that level of destruction is what you deserve. That sin and its consequence of death is horrific. And so this is what is happening on the day of the Lord. It is a day of sacrifice, a day when God's wrath is sated, not by a substitute, but by those who have rebelled against Him. God does not slaughter the offering for the sake of someone else, but rather for the sake of appeasing His own wrath by slaughtering those who rebel against him. There's all sorts of things that this should remind us of. And there are psalms where the psalmist will cry out, How long, O Lord, will the heathen prosper, will the wicked prosper, while those who follow you suffer? Why, why is it this way? Why do they persist in their rebellion when, when they should deserve these things, yet they seem to prosper and your people suffer? There is this, this underlying current of injustice. That, why are these things happening? Let it not fool you. God, the King, the Sovereign of the universe, 
His wrath must be satisfied. And for all those who turn away from Him, for all those who persist in rebellion and continue to reject Jesus Christ, that wrath will be satisfied on them themselves. They will be the sacrifice. So when we read in verse 7 that the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, it should terrify us as we read on of the rest of this passage. So what, when, when this comes up for us, reminding us of the consequence of sin, the second thing that it seeks to do is it seeks to remind us that for us to avoid the fate of this animal, we have to have some way in which that wrath is satisfied. We need a substitute. We need an intermediary. I mean, imagine what it would have been like in the time of Israel. Let's say you came to the priests and, and you, you, you know, earlier that day, you had noticed maybe on, on your, up, up on your sleeve here, on your, on your skin, there was a mark. And maybe it was leprosy. And so you had to present yourself. And notice, you didn't go to the doctors. You didn't go to, to some medical professional. Where did you go when you had leprosy? You went to the priest. And the priest would look, and, and he would call you to bring a sacrifice that you may be cleansed by God's grace. And that sacrifice would take upon itself just that little bit of the effects of sin by dying, and then by God's grace you would be cleansed. And that's just one small aspect of many ways in which the sacrifice pointed to the fact that you needed an intermediary. But here's the thing about those sacrifices, the, the blood of those bulls and those goats, those birds, those animals. You would come one day and you would offer the sacrifice, and then the next day, guess what you needed again? Another sacrifice. In fact, on that great day, the Day of Atonement, when Israel would come and God would descend upon His people, and, and there would be an opportunity for them to make an offering for the sins that they didn't even remember that they had did, the sins of omission, the sins that, that dealt deep within them. They would come, and on that day, the the high priest would enter into the holy place once. And on that great day, there was a, a celebration. There was an action of, of God's forgiveness for a year. But then the next year came around, and what did you need to do again? Another sacrifice. And this went on every year for millennia, pointing to the fact that you needed a sacrifice but then pointing to the fact that whatever sacrifice you brought was not enough. That you could never, through your sacrifices, through your actions, provide what is necessary to truly satisfy the wrath of God. And so the sword of His wrath will one day ultimately be sated. 
if you don't have a sufficient sacrifice on you. And that is what Zephaniah points to here today. So all of these things, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and the point of what Zephaniah is saying here, it points us to the fact that our efforts cannot save ourselves. We're going to go through here next week, and we're going to see who it is that the Lord sacrifices. And he gives a description of, of every aspect of society in Judah. And there were probably some very, as we would say, good-hearted, well-intentioned people who never trusted in the only sacrifice that can save. And they too are consumed by the sword of God's wrath. So when we read the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, it finally points us to the fact that we need the Lord to prepare another sacrifice besides ourselves. That we need Christ. In Leviticus chapter 10, there's a scene from the life of Israel. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, we have the story of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were priests of God. They were the sons of Aaron. They were charged with representing Israel before God himself. These were the first priests. Notice what they did. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So they came in not following God's commands. They offered a sacrifice that they thought was sufficient of themselves. And what happened to them? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. God immediately showed that He will not accept a sacrifice that does not accord with His demands. Now, imagine being Aaron here. These are your sons, and they are consumed by fire from God because they didn't come with the right sacrifice. Moses says to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And what did Aaron do? Did he argue with God, saying, you took my sons away. This wasn't fair. This wasn't right. What did Aaron do? He held his peace. He hushed. He was silent before the Lord. I think in many ways what we see in Leviticus chapter 10 is a precursor to what Zephaniah is describing here. 
Nadab and Abihu came to offer sacrifices before the Lord, but because they came in dependence on themselves, they became the sacrifice themselves. As God's wrath consumed them. So how should we respond to this? What does God's day of judgment remind us of? And again, we're going to look at the details in more detail next week. But the first thing I would say is sin's consequence is horrific. It is horrific. What you're going to read here, where you're going to see a discussion of a day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, of people's goods being plundered, of crying and wailing. Why is that so horrific? Because that is the consequence of sin. And then you're going to go about your week this week, and you're going to be tempted to think little of sin. You're going to be tempted to engage in some sort of action that you know God has forbidden. Maybe it's in your thoughts. Maybe it's in what you can point your web browser to to watch. Maybe it's in the way that you respond to to someone. Or, Or maybe it's in your own frustrations. You're going to act in a way that is not in accordance with God's nature. And you're going to think, oh, it's not that big a deal. God understands. This is what sin brings. The wages of sin is horrific death. So we have to keep that very clearly in mind. Secondly, God's day of judgment reminds us that our efforts to appease God's wrath are hopeless. You cannot do it yourself. God's wrath will only be sated upon you when you are fully consumed by it, if you look to yourself. You can't do it. You cannot do it apart from your own eternal destruction and damnation. It is impossible for you to save yourself. In fact, there's an interesting note that Zephaniah says in this passage in verse 17. I want to draw your attentions there just for a moment. Zephaniah says that God is going to bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And because of that, their blood shall be poured out like what? Dust. And their flesh like dung. It's useless. It's vain. It's empty. It doesn't accomplish anything that brings about salvation. If you think that you, by your efforts and your works and your deeds and your goodness, can offer a sacrifice acceptable for God, to God, He tells you that even the giving of your own blood is nothing but dust on the ground. Even if you give your flesh to be consumed, it is worth nothing but dust. And so that reality shows us that we need 
a sufficient sacrifice. Zephaniah's words here point us away from ourselves to the need for a better sacrifice. Christ is that sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing not a temporary relief, but an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God, on his day, that is yet to come, is preparing a sacrifice of all those who turn from Christ. And they will face the full blunt of the sword of His wrath. Their blood will be gorged upon by God's wrath. But there is another hope. And it is in Christ. He is the one who sacrificed Himself. He is the one whom the Father prepared as a sacrifice so that we would never have to know what Zephaniah speaks of here. So that God's wrath would be satiated upon Christ and not us. Our blood, if offered on this sacrifice, is nothing but dust. But the blood of Jesus, Peter tells us, is precious. It's not blood that is spilt for dust. It is blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It is blood that provides hope for humanity. So let us be very clear about what Zephaniah is going to tell us in the next couple weeks. He is going to describe the horrors of what it means to persist in rejecting Christ. 
He is going to show that the day of the Lord is a day of wrath that will be meted out on all who turn from Him. We don't need to conjecture about when it's going to happen. We don't need to try to read the tea leaves of what's going on in current events to see if this is happening soon. We know it will happen. Zephaniah tells us that the day is near. It's not for us to figure all that out. It is for us to reflect on are we under the sacrifice of Christ? May we take up the charge here to sobriety, to think properly about sin and its consequences and to ardently share the hope of Christ. You realize there are people outside of these doors. There are people in your lives. There are people in your families that are going to, if they persist in their rebellion, face these terrible things. And you can take the message and tell them, There is another sacrifice. Not you, but Jesus of Nazareth. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. And the wrath of God will be satisfied in Him on your behalf. May our response be like Aaron's. Aaron saw this very thing in his own sons who were consumed. May we take the charge to be quiet and to trust in our Lord. The first description of the day of the Lord is that it is a day of sacrifice. Sacrifice on those who reject Christ, but pointing forward to the great sacrifice of Christ who washes away all our sins. And so this is how we see both wrath and joy mingled together. 